Every now and again, you come across a story that's just so freaking bizarre, so unbelievable, you, you just dismiss it. It's, it's just too strange, too much to conceive, so we shun it and assume it's false or a hoax. However, like a portion of our podcast opening states, close-minded we become fearful to be deceived. This is one of those such stories, so buckle up out there as we investigate a story so hard to wrap your mind around and fathom. It takes place in Wales, England in the 1980s. It is by all accounts a mixture of witchcraft, crystal balls, and ghost writing, not only from the past to the present, but also the future. Join us tonight as we dive into the weirdest and wildest of mysteries, the Doddleston Writings. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. As I sit here with Eric, and he's doing his notes on his laptop, and I have my cell phone on the table, which is, you know, arguably, you know, the computer you carry in your pocket every day is more powerful than any computer made 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I was into computers at a very young age. I had a Commodore 64 in my home when I was in elementary school. So I'm familiar with computers from the time frame we're about to talk about. And there was no internet the way you understand it today no. back then you you didn't connect you know you networking was primitive back in those days and and again i bet a lot of our listeners don't even remember that hideous screaming screech of connecting up to the <laughs> internet that some of us and, still and do. that yeah and that even you know comes after the story that we're gonna tell yeah but you know back in 1985 computers were pretty primitive at least on the home computing front you know you had supercomputers available to the government and things like that but as far as your home computer went you have probably you probably had more power in one of your little old-timey nokia cell phones that could barely play snake <laughs> you know what i mean like a nintendo an, a regular old school nintendo was was a bigger gaming machine than most home computers oh yeah so when a computer in 1985, starts communicating messages out of the blue to its owner. That's not hooked up to it's any internet connection any whatsoever. Internet or network or whatever. That's quite a mystery as to the hows and the why. Now, I have to admit, I didn't know anything about this story when Eric brought it to my attention. That seems to happen a lot to us. You know, one of us comes up with this interesting idea and the other one's like, I've never heard of this. Yep. So the more I got to read into this, this was really an interesting story to me. So, but, but it is your story, Eric. I'll let you kick it off. Well, actually, December 1984, Ken Webster, a high school teacher, was living with his friend Nick and a girlfriend, Debbie, in the small village of Doddleston, where we get the Doddleston Messages title. So, like Eric said, you have Ken and Debbie and his friend living together, and they had recently moved into this rundown 18th century meadow cottage. Where do I, I sign the name up? Of it. I would love that. And of course, you know, run down, they immediately almost begin renovating the property. Uh, during these renovations, they began to notice some strange and unusual activity in the home. 
initially, when you start with this story, you could almost say it was a poltergeist case, but things progress from there. They noticed strange six-toed footprints in the dust as they were renovating, uh, which at times seemed to walk up the walls. And even on the ceiling. Uh, Yeah. So they figured this was a prank, maybe even from the previous owner. And so Ken painted over these footprints and didn't think anything else of them. The next day, the footprints were back on the floors, up the walls. Uh, Over the next few weeks after they had moved in, they began to experience all kinds of things going on uh, that made them feel like they weren't alone in the house. Sudden temperature drops, gusts of wind strong enough to lift a newspaper off of a table into the air, the feeling of an eerie presence in the cottage. Well, they even came in one time and found all their cat food cans stacked in a nice, neat pyramid. So that's kind of weird. Now, during this time, Ken was working as a teacher at a local school, and he had brought home a BBC microcomputer that he had borrowed. And soon after the computer was set up, things got even weirder. The trio was walking home one evening from a local pub where they had approached their cottage, and they had noticed this strange green pulsating light emitting from the house's windows. Now, as they entered the house, they became quite alarmed. Their computer, while not hooked up to any form of an internet, uh, and no one being home all night long, had typing that had appeared on the screen. The wording was like an an old English, old-style text, and they did not quite honestly fully understand. However, they clearly saw it was addressed to them. So this first message that they found on the screen when they, when they arrived was, a, was written in the form of a poem, and I will read it here. And I'm going to try to read it. I'm, I'm going to kind of hybridize it between what I know they were trying to say and the way it was actually written. It is spelled it's extremely written, strange. Yeah, you have to kind of interpret English. it a little bit. But the first poem is kind of straightforward. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. Pussycat, pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. Message one. Weird. Weird, kind of gibberish. It's poetry, but yeah. Now, over the next several months, this became, I will say, semi-common. Uh, to a point where Ken, his friend Nick, and, and Ken's girlfriend Debbie decided they were going to play along, thinking that this somehow was part of a prank starting to respond to the strange messages. Yeah. Even even the, the second message, which came just mere days after the first one there, but it, it seemed to be written in an old form of English, and it kind of introduced the 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 author a little bit in a way. A few days later, there was actually a file name that they found that was saved to the computer. The file name was REAT, R-E-A-T-E. They opened it and found it to contain more Old English-type writing. So this message was, I write on behalf of many. What strange words thou speak, although I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled. Sometimes methinks alterations are somewhat barful, for they breaks main asleep in mine bed. Thou art goodly man who hath fanciful women who dwell in mine home. I have no want to affray, for only sith mine half-witted antic has ripped a twain mine bound hath I been wrested a night. I don't know what any of that means. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen mine alterations last, lasty changed house and thou home. Tis a fitting place with lights which devil maketh and costly things that only mine friend Edmund Gray can afford, or the king himself. T'was a great crime he hath bribed my house. Signed, L.W. 
Now, Ken printed the letter and took it with him to school, where most thought it was definitely entertaining, but uh, had to be nonsense. But not Peter Trender, uh, who also taught there at the school, and he taught literature. He was convinced this was some form of an old true English, and he informed Ken to please make him aware if he got any further letters. He was really intrigued. And to help him continue to investigate, to, to move forward, to determine exactly what time frame and location might lend itself to such dialect. However, several days went by and nothing occurred. Ken then had the idea. If he was able to receive the messages, and apparently even files, perhaps he could send messages. So he sat down and he did that. He's still a little hesitant at this point, not fully believing anything more than it could be a hoax or a pranks, but why not play along? He starts asking question after question, trying to gleam any information to help prove this. Either way, is it true or is it false? Just for his own sanity. Dear LW, thank you for your message. We're sorry for disturbing you. What would you like us to do? Did you live in a house on this land about 1620? Do you want to tell us more about your time? Who is Edmund Gray? Do you have family? Is the King James or Charles? What is the charge house? Was this village called Doddleston in your life? Thank you very much for your message, and thank you for not making us afraid. Signed, Ken, Debbie, and John. Now, John, I thought was strange here because they refer to the friend as Nick, but I believe John and Nick is like Nick was a middle name or, you know, kind of a shared name. Now, they save the messages to the disk. They, they leave the computer on lock up and leave the house for the night hoping for a response and they get one when they return home that very evening twas an honest farm of oak and stone it is helpful that you should tell me more about thy's time dost thou have a horse edmund gray brother john gray lives at kinnerton hall thy kin of course is henry the eighth who is six and forty i knee woot of king james Mine charge house is place of law, schooling, L.W., March 28th, Anno, A-N-N-O, dated 1521. This was troubling and confusing. The, the facts were all wrong. For one, the year 1521, King Henry VIII was only 30 years old, not 46. Still, Ken decided to print this out and take the literature, take it to his friend, the literature school teacher, Peter, who was trying to confirm the facts. He went on to say Kennington Hall would not be built for another 200 years, well after 1521. He also found no mention whatsoever of an Edmund or John Gray in the history books for the area. Ken was doubtful, with the use of question marks also used in the text. Question marks were not used or even invented in that time frame yet. So led Ken to worry a bit more, believing they possibly had an intruder somehow gaining access into their house or perhaps hiding somewhere inside the house. But with Peter's conversation, he decided to continue to play the game, and he received even more messages on the computer, all about the history of the house, the area, and the time, and they weren't signed by just J.W., but the author's full name. He spoke out about more history of his life, losing his son and wife during the plague. He told about how he harvests his own barley for ale and how he makes his own cheese. He describes the home as humble, made of redstone and setting on a pretty parcel of land. Meadow Cottage, where Ken, Nick, and Debbie lived, was not made of redstone, 
but during renovations, however, they had dug up some redstone with mortar in their garden. Also, beneath the kitchen floor as they were replacing the section, was found another foundation, a structure much, much older than the others. And that foundation, indeed, was made of redstone. You could also tell the mystery writer of the past had a different tone in his writings now. He seemed that Ken was actually intruding on him, and seemed just as concerned of someone in foul play as Ken was in reverse. However, at this time, he signed the letter Lucas, and we learned that L.W. was actually Lucas Wayneman. And now that we know his name, I feel like I want to jump in real quick and say that during the time they were receiving these messages, Debbie began to have dreams about Lucas. These dreams, she said, felt more real than regular dreams to her, including one particularly steamy dream where she and Lucas had made candles together. I kind of envisioned like the scene from Ghost. I was going to say the exact same thing, <laughs> making the pottery on the, on the pottery wheel. Now, these new informational facts uh, might lend itself to a better understanding, so he shared them this new information once again with his legendary uh, school buddy, Peter. Now, Peter firmly believed that the sentence structure mixed with Latin placed it most likely in the middle of the 16th century in what would be known as the Cheshire area, which is exactly where Lucas said he had been living in the year 1512. Also at that time, communication went on. The facts and historical references seemed to become more defined and even more accurate. Lucas wrote in another letter, in his time, King Henry VIII was married to Catherine Parr. So that put him in the 1540s, which made it much more believable. So was this a hoax? Well, one might think, but ponder this. If it was a hoax, would not the person behind it try to make statements closer to historical facts, trying to make it sound more plausible and believable, rather than to tear down some of the believability with what they knew not to be true? Uh, You must also consider L.W., or Lucas, was a rural, simple farmer living in a small village, and he was an uneducated man, so any source of information would have only trickled down through travelers, at best second, third-hand information. Let us also consider in such tiny villages, such small settlements, they weren't good at record-keeping, especially for every soul that lived in the area. So, It really wasn't that hard to believe that a name or two might have been missed. But at one point, they were alerted that Lucas was in trouble by a friend of Lucas's who told them that that Lucas was being accused of witchcraft. Yes. At that point, they also learned that Lucas was not his real name. Again. They were given the name then of Thomas Harden or Hawarden. And when they looked that up, they, they were able to find that there was a vicar with that name who lived there roughly during that time frame. Things started making a lot more connections so, connecting the dots but he was he was at a church in uh, gloucestershire now apparently the sheriff that was also prosecuting lucas by the name of thomas Fowlshurst also sent a message via the computer but after pressure was put on Fowlshurst, lucas returned home and he resumed contact with ken and debbie but then things got even more cryptic when ken told thomas that he was living in the year 1985 mm-hmm. to which he got the response you said your time be 1985 me thought you were also from 2109, like your friend, whom did us bring a box of lights prey. Now, he talks about this box of lights, which we have to assume means someone brought him a computer. Well, he actually says in one of the notes that one evening as he sat by the fireplace, his entire outside of his house was illuminated in a green beam and that a humanoid human 
stepped out of the fire and presented him with this magic box that he could speak into and words would appear. So Ken, intrigued by this, he sends a message simply says, calling 2109 on the computer, to which he gets the following response. Try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he is. 2109 obviously communicated in a totally different tone, different manner of speaking. And here we have where they, they're writing to the future now. Not yeah, just now the they're past, writing so. to the future. Additional messages would come from 2109, such as, The eyes are open, yet nothing do you see. The gray retarding mass is your convict. Quietly, alone he sits in the dark, waiting for sentence to be passed, and demanding through the eyes of the blind of unspoken questions to answers of ethereal kind. The soul, he is the traveler. Chain nor bar can hold him to frail flesh. He is the ruler of time and space. Here is your God. So 2109 was still cryptic, still delivering strange messages, but he told Ken and Debbie were involved in an experiment for a higher purpose and spoke obviously more scientific, but he gave little away about what was going on. Again, he wasn't trying to reveal too much. Yeah, very vague. He didn't want to in, in, influence them in any way. I do want to go back and touch on uh, the arrest of Lucas for witchcraft. Oh, okay. I had a little bit more there that I thought was kind of humorous. You can obviously see during that time frame how it would be considered if you, witchcraft. If you had a box of lights, if you, you could had talk a to box it. of lights, and if it truly was recording your speech and yeah, trying to commune with these spirits. But uh, during that time frame, when they'd received the message back that you know Lucas is not here, he's been locked away by a sheriff. Deb and Ken decided they must take an aggressive approach, so they did kind of something a little radical. They were trying to help uh, their friend Lucas escape from possible death at that time, uh, so. They typed a stern warning and shared it, sending it back. It said, take this to the local sheriff. Uh, he must be contacted. And they demanded that Lucas be released or they would be forced to use their magic powers to set harm upon the sheriff. <laughs> this apparently worked as Lucas in a few days started communicating once again and stated the sheriff had released him without question. Now, with this new shown of good faith and friendship, obviously here Debbie and Ken have you know, went out there to help Lucas and with the sharing of, you know, 1985 and the different time frames, you know, it seemed to kind of put a closer bond between them uh, to a point. It was later described by Lucas as a love stretched across the ages. It was interesting as the two begin to openly communicate a little bit more, kind of letting their guards down. Ken felt comfortable at this point in asking Lucas if he was the one coming to their time in 1985 and moving and stacking items, moving things around, some of that paranormal-type activity that occurred. Lucas immediately replied, No, tis not I, but I also am experiencing similar occurrences. And the two men, Lucas and Ken, began to speculate that the paranormal occurrences were most likely being caused by the entity they now called 2109. So then they tried to communicate in some cryptic styles themselves to explain the next steps in fear that they were being monitored by 2109. Lucas was able to get Ken to move the computer into the kitchen, where in Lucas's time frame, it was closer to him. Remember I said the foundation was beneath the kitchen floor and all of that from Lucas's time frame. And hopefully he could communicate better and not be possibly 
filtered or messages even altered, which they believed at this point could be happening by 2109, in a way to protect them from sharing too much critical information. Lucas especially became very distrusting of 2109 and asked Ken to leave a parchment paper and writing instrument next to the computer. Ken did not understand the request, but he did so in good faith. And that would probably be because it began to become apparent that Lucas could kind of see what they were doing at times. Seemed to be able to see, not just though yeah. through this computer. I, I kind of got that, gleamed that same amount. Now, the next morning, Ken entered the kitchen to find a handwritten note on paper and pen that he had left. It was an elegant cursive form of writing and signed Thomas. Within the handwritten letter, with the help of Peter to translate, Lucas, originally known as L.W., was actually neither. He had used these false names in fear of being caught or exposed by 2109 and found guilty of witchcraft, which apparently came close to occurring. Lucas went on to say, I am only telling you my real name in this written hand, which is Thomas. That is my real name. As I do not believe 2109 will suspect a handwritten note, Thomas went on to say in the letter, you already have my name. It's in your book. It's also the name of Peter's house. Peter lived in a nearby town known as Harwooden, which is also the name of the school where Ken and Peter both taught. They suspected that 2109 would not be aware of a handwritten note, but that that's obviously not the case. You did that. Because 2109 was annoyed that they had discovered Lucas's real name and uh, was concerned that this could disrupt their plans altogether. So, obviously, 2109 was also maybe seeing what was going on. Yeah, 2109 actually reached out on the computer and typing a message. Ken, Deb, Peter, we have reason to believe you have Lucas Wayman's true name. If this is correct, you must say so, so we can rectify the problem immediately before it is accepted. With a new system of communication and handwriting notes, both to and from Ken and Thomas Harwooden, the two learned 2109 had indeed been altering messages from both men back and forth, presumably to be changing some of the details. This could also help explain why some of the details did not make historical sense. Definitely at this point, Ken and Debbie became firm believers. There was no way that communication could be happening this often that no one could be breaking into their house without being discovered or living somehow in the house and hiding and moving around. So to them, this was no longer a hoax. And their friend, the literary teacher Peter, was also fully on board. But who are these people from 2109? Originally, Lucas had thought they were a friend of Ken's, but Ken assured him he'd never had any communication with them before Lucas himself had brought it up. During the coming days and weeks, the spike in paranormal activity, almost poltergeist, uh, would wreak havoc on the house. As Bill had stated already previously, but now increased, stacks of books and dishes were found almost defying logic being stacked. Footsteps could be heard when investigated. No one was there, but footprints were still apparent tracked in the dust. Certain areas of the home again became so cold you could see your breath and then leave and warm up. Strange orbs zipped through the cottage. Strange tapping noises and even old English dialect could be heard mumbled but not understood. Even words were found written in chalk around the house, especially on the kitchen floor area, which included the name Lucas. The ordeal and interruptions in life was becoming far too much. Friend Nick, at this point, moves out. He has had enough. 
Even girlfriend Debbie rented another cottage not far away where she and Ken could escape from time to time just to try to get some sleep and rest without interruptions. Now, Deb herself became more and more involved, trying to investigate in different ways than Ken and Peter were also working kind of as a team effort trying to understand. She studied several local old maps and discovered a ley line ran directly through their cottage. What is a ley line, you may ask? Well, in layman's terms, it's a line drawn between two key structures or sites on Earth that are believed to be able to harness or carry strong magnetic pulses or energy. Such places as the pyramids in Egypt, Stonehenge, even the pyramids of Chichen Itza in Mexico, to name a few. Now, often doing research into the paranormal realms by studying these features, it's found that commonly old churches and even graveyards often fall on these lines, the ley lines. Some believe these can amplify paranormal activity almost as a main artery to the body with the most force and power traveling through these through the veins of the earth. After making this discovery, Deb remembers, especially while in her sleep of dream walking, that she again was interacting with Lucas. Bill had touched upon this where they had made candles together. He was trying to reach out and contact her privately, it seemed. Things started getting so strange that Deb and Ken reached out to the Society for Psychological Research to come and investigate and hopefully help them understand what was going on. Now, this group has been around since the early 1880s and is still active even today. Two members answered the call and proposed a study test. One identified himself as being named David. They would send 10 questions to the year 2109 and then delete them before Ken and Deb could find out what they were. Ken and Deb were in a separate room away from the computer while the members typed and waited for a reply. Once they got that reply, they would then seal that in a letter with the question. A few days later, they got a reply, but it is not what David and the group was expecting. The message from 2109 reads, Next time you decide to perform your little experiment, you must be clear from here. We suggest you try someone else to set with Debbie. Yes, we are what you would call a tachyon universe, but your understanding is incorrect. We ask nothing more of you than to carry on as you would prefer. We will have John present if given choice, or you may bring another as mentioned. No, it is no concern to us that this is not proved. We will give you a plotting the star coordinates next time of a star that will be discovered in your time frame. We move at speed so that we cover every point in your time and universe. We have no form. We feed on heat and energy that you will not have heard of, signed 2109. David of the Society stated in 2109 did not answer all the questions, but did address the ones that they answered in the sequence in which they were given. Ken and Deb believed this would help convince the society that this was not a hoax, but there was something truly paranormal going on. Now, after the society left the home, they speculated somehow Ken or Deb may have planted hidden microphones in the room. And while the questions were not verbally stated as they were typing them out, the society proposed that possibly Ken or Deb or someone else was listening to the keystrokes of the keyboard as they typed in the questions. and were able to somehow understand those questions. It's not a touch-tone phone. Individual keys do not make their own sound, so even if you listen to what was being typed, 
I can't see how you could possibly listen to someone type and understand what was being typed. That was so far out of my grasp. It's like, you talk about a stretch. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, you got a keyboard in front of you. Type something on it. it we'll just, see if the listener can hear it. Okay. Here, yeah. here we go. Listen closely. You <laughs> yeah. know what I type, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> so that, that is a ridiculous potential explanation. I, I totally agree. Ken, somewhat upset that the society didn't really give him the answers that he wanted, while he didn't necessarily want them to say it was real, he wanted for them to be able to prove without a shadow of a doubt, is it real or is it a fake? Meanwhile, the society who had been come to uh, research Ken and Deb's home and events, they published their findings. They said, clearly, if this case is a hoax, then the two teachers are the prime suspects. I believe also there may be a third party responsible. I would have loved to have proved it was genuine. It would have been the most unique phenomenon ever recorded. Something or someone is obviously doing this. It was not the job of our SPR society to point the finger, however. Ken became so irate at the society that they had so quickly dismissed their case and didn't even reach out to them before publishing this. So Ken reaches to the society again, contacting them, and asks for copies of the files from the investigators. Here's where it gets stranger yet. Upon doing so, the SPR Society stated, We don't have any such files, nor was there any case booked by our society. We have one member matching the name John you mentioned, but he's mysteriously vanished. We do not, nor have ever, had a member by the name of David, as you suggest for the other. Ken was now more confused than ever, and even more irate, to a point the entity of 2109 must have picked up on this. So 2109 reached out to Ken, giving him not only a contact name, but a phone number. The message reads, There is a brilliant researcher, a UFOologist. We know you don't like the word. His name is Gary M. Rowe. His ideas differ somewhat from yours, but nevertheless, he can help you with a couple of your problems. You may phone him at the number below and invite him to come talk to you. When he comes, show him this and ask him what he makes of it. Peter must be the one to do the telephoning. Tell him you got this number from a UFO enthusiast. Signed, 2109. Now, Gary Rowe was a UFO researcher that was not a firm believer in Ken and Debbie's ordeal or stories. But he did come along with a small arsenal of tools and did do his own investigation. Gary ran his own tests in which he would write out questions for 2109-2109 and place them in a sealed envelope on the computer. He would then ask Ken to print the response which would be attached to each one of the sealed questions. After quite some time of doing this and finally opening the questions and comparing the answers, Gary attempts to directly type to the entity of 2109. He apologizes and states, Ken and Deb want me to apologize for my lack of trust and believing in you. Regardless, I would have done so on my own accord. I must also apologize to Ken and Debbie, as I did not understand the full importance of all that is going on here at first. Something in one of the messages sealed with the question seemed to strike Gary in a massive way. However, he would not share that information with Ken. Ken again became irate to the point of a heated tension breaking between Gary and Ken, causing Gary to leave the house during the middle of the night. And we would not hear from Gary again for many years. After roughly 18 months of activity, Ken and Debbie finally get what they believe is going to be the final message from 2109. And it reads, There is another person to come. 
They will be the help we need. You will know them when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book and soon died, shortly after he placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it, though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford. The inscription reads, Me writes this in the hope that mine fellows will one day find this book, then may our lands be not so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need to write back as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation. 2109. Now, as of right now, I don't believe that book has ever been discovered. No, and that's that's referencing back to uh, Lucas, Thomas, whatever name you want to want to use. He tells in one of the communication notes that before he dies, he says, actually, before I meet my maker, I will finish this book and I am writing our story in hopes that when it is discovered, that it will become more believable and you know, all of this, and, and it was written in Latin by help of a friend that he said. And yes, to your point, it was put there in the college, supposedly hidden, and it has not been found to this day. Now, as far as that goes, that, that story is essentially told. Ken would eventually go on to publish a book entitled The Vertical Plane, in which he recorded about a third of the messages that were relayed between them and Lucas in 2109. And Ken would describe the experience in his own words. Now, in August of 1996, a show called Out of This World covered the case in two parts. Now, during this uh, investigation, a Dr. Laura Wright of Cambridge University analyzed the text received from Lucas, and she said the verb structure that Lucas used would not have been used at the time. Asked if she thought it was a hoax, Wright stated, If it's meant to look like early modern English writing, it doesn't even look close. Ken, of course, countered that, well, that's what any expert would say if they wanted to keep their position. You know, you don't usually find people like that wanting to agree with paranormal activity. Uh, however, Wright also completed an analysis of the writing and found Lucas's messages were almost identical to Webster's descriptive writing in his book. Now, of course, Ken also countered that he was not present for about, he wasn't present necessarily for all of Lucas's messages. And so that when he was writing his book, he had to rewrite them from the descriptions others had given him. So he wasn't quoting Lucas verbatim, according to him. Now, investigators still to this day claim that the case is a hoax, though most have admitted they have no idea how it could have been perpetrated. There's obviously a lot of things you could argue here. Was it a hoax? Was it true? Was it partial true? And some people would say, often with hoaxes, people try to make money. They try to gain fame. That's actually not the case with this. Ken did write the one book that Bill stated, but he says on an interview that basically he just wanted to put that down while it was still fresh in his mind. He wrote it, I, I want to say, within four or five years of the occurrences to basically just kind of you know monumentally mark that. He could have obviously written several books about this if he was seeking to gain financial you know, favor. Also, the fact that they're not really out there. Ken especially has withdrawn from society he he's very leads a very private life so he definitely is not looking for it when the bbc did this documentary they did track down ken and debbie and they did appear on it but i was told their backs were towards the camera and at some points they even altered their voice so these are not people that's like hey look at me send me your money debbie is still out on the internet she will still talk about it she's definitely more open about it than uh, ken but, you know, in closing, I'm not sure if this story can be debunked, but uh, certainly questioned. There's a great deal of many facts that can be proved, but also some that is nothing more than hearsay without definitive proof. Gary Rowe, the UFO researcher, did surface some 10 years later, definitively defending the whole ordeal. 
stating to the public, believe what you want, question it as you should. But as far as I, I am a believer. He says, it's changed my life forever. And I do feel lucky to have been chosen to be a part of it. Peter, the literary teacher, was also on the BBC documentary, and he states it took him decades of researching, matching up words he found with uh, everything to be quite believable. Still, there are those literary scholars, as Bill mentioned, that argue that it was a mixed verbiage of language as well as times. But let us not forget that 2109 was altering and editing some of these early messages, which maybe they put the question marks in, you know, for one thing that was brought up that in that time frame they didn't use question marks. That's what we do. We bring you the stories and we allow you to decide. Does that mean it's time for headlines? Let's do headlines. There's a story of a man from Poland that awoke from a coma from nearly 20 years. It all started in 1988 when the man named Jan was working at the railroad company. Uh, was involved in a very serious accident resulting in head trauma. Considering the medical facilities at that time frame were not nearly as advanced as they are today, some 35 years later, the doctors really couldn't do much for Jan, who fell into a deep sleep coma. His wife, Gratuda, was told uh, her husband would most likely never awaken, and if he did, he would be brain dead, depending on the longer that he remained in that coma. But she never gave up hope. She kept praying for her husband for some sort of medical breakthrough and a miracle to save him. And apparently someone was listening, because despite doctors and specialists' belief he would have never awakened, he actually did. They were quite shocked when he started breathing on his own 19 years later without breathing uh, machines or assistance. Now, he was more than startled, according to the news. Uh, upon waking up, he went under in 1988. When he did, he had four children. When he woke up 19 years later, he got to meet 11 grandchildren to his family. The aged man had a lot of new faces to get accustomed to, as his children were now adult and had been married with families of their own. According to more news and interview broadcasts, he stated he was so surprised with the technological advances in the time uh, when he was asleep. He said, I see people on the street talking on cell phones and shops with so much more merchandise. It just makes my head spin. The man was becoming quite famous across the world, featured in so many newspaper and magazine articles as well as national TV. One media group, however, called The Guardian, decided to dig a bit deeper into the man's mystery, noticing that there were a lot of voiceovers that was applied to the news broadcasts, and they were just resharing and adding more as the story went on. They decided, why not go back to the source and let's get to the bottom of this. The truth came out when he shared his story with a reporter from The Guardian. Number one, he had not been in a coma for 19 years but rather only four years, still very significant. He went on to tell the Guardian reporter that he only told his story once to a reporter, never ever being interviewed by anyone else until the Guardian. Yet as he watched over the weeks and the months, the story that was his kept getting exaggerated and it angered him. His wife also spoke up in the interview, clarifying a few more facts. Truly, Jan was not bedfast that entire time. He was in poor health, but he was in a wheelchair, and he had limited successes through the years even. His wife said 
While he couldn't speak, I knew he could hear me as I asked him questions and he would use different facial expressions, and I learned what those meant. And we were able to communicate in that manner. He was able to watch TV during most all the entire time, and therefore for them to say that he was asleep for 19 years and not realizing technology was bogus. I mean, I hate to be this guy, but I mean, we're we're talking about some fake news here. Absolutely fake news. (laughs) And he went on to say, yes, they, they mocked me almost saying that these technological advancements, I couldn't believe and fathom. I watched them. I knew them. And he goes, what really angered me were they were reusing clips and pieces I said and altering them, even doing voiceovers over my own voice from that first interview. He went on to say, I also met my grandchildren, each and every one of them as they were born. I knew of them. I was uncertain if I would remember or could hear or understand at the time, it just goes to show you how media can take an already astonishing story and manipulate it into something more in order to make sales and ultimately make more money. In this case, it was not Jan nor Gratuta seeking fame or wealth, but still how things spiraled out of control for them with no one really caring to take the time to get to the bottom of the story. Until The Guardian, when they did just that and ripped the facts from the fiction. I think this is part of the reason why Ken, Deb, and Peter were so reluctant, even to this day, to speak of what happened. It also helps to explain why Ken wrote his own version of the book and got his word out there in front of everybody within a few years of it occurring. So, I just thought that kind of blended in as possibly to why some of them acted the way they did. My headline is from the New York Post, dated November 26, 2022, and it's entitled Five New Technologies That Could Turn Our World Into a Scary Real-Life Peripheral. It's by Rob Waugh. Now, there's an Amazon Prime TV series called The Peripheral, which is based on the William Gibson's novel of the same title, and it depicts the year 2099 in which a much-reduced humanity relies on AI intelligent robot servants, and there are VR headsets that allow people to travel back in time. Now, some of these technologies exist in early forms today you have amazon's ai bot alexa and meta's virtual reality headsets there are many real life advancements right now in development that could fundamentally change the world as we know it so i'm going to go through these five technologies quickly well number one quantum computing experts warn that a new kind of computer could literally break the internet leaving everything from state secrets to bank accounts at the mercy of criminals quantum computers are currently being developed and they could be the most com- powerful computers on the planet. And they, they could use this technology to speed up processes such as the development of drugs and you know, cancer prevention you know, methods. But according to David Motti, a cybersecurity expert, he warns that this power could also come with dangers. These computers have, quote, so much processing power, they will make the encryption we have today unfit for that purpose in an instant. This means that all the world's data will no longer be secure. Think of everything from bank account details to medical records to state secrets. A quantum computer would be able to crack the most sophisticated modern encryption within a week. Mahdi warns that this day, which he calls Q-Day, could be coming within the next 10 to 15 years. Wow. Next, we have killer drones. Normally, drones are piloted by human beings remotely, and decisions to attack and kill are always made by a person. But the expense of highly trained combat pilots could, at some point, tempt military leaders to switch to a cheaper, autonomous weapon. In fact, this has already happened. 
In 2020, the Libyan government launched an autonomous drone strike that attacked retreating rebel soldiers, according to a UN report. This autonomous weapon system was programmed to act on its own. So, according to the UN report, these weapons, quote, act without requiring data connectivity between the operator and the munition. In effect, a true fire, forget, and find capability. So, in 2017, technology leaders wrote to the UN calling for the banning of autonomous weapons such as these. Elon Musk himself claimed that they were a Pandora's box marking a new evolution in warfare. Quote, once developed, lethal autonomous weapons will permit armed conflict to be fought at a scale greater than ever and at timescales faster than humans can comprehend. I mean, we're talking Skynet level scary. Nanotechnology. Nanotechnology has the ability to manipulate atoms and molecules to achieve tiny miracles and could one day lead to little machines that revolutionize the way we live. Hospitals are already using magnetic nanoparticles to deliver drugs within the human body and silver nanoparticles to help fight infection. But as this technology involves, some think it could be used to create devastating weapons. A 2008 University of Oxford study considered nanoweapons as having a 1 in 20 chance of exterminating humanity by the end of the 21st century. Whoa. These type of weapons could take the form of artificially intelligent swarms of tiny robots that would devour biological matter like a swarm of locusts. Physicist Louis Del Monte describes artificially intelligent nanobots that can self-replicate by seeking out the right atoms and assembling new nanobots that are clones of the original. Uh, Once released, their mission would be twofold, he says. Kill humans and replicate. 90% of the human race could fall victim to their attacks in a matter of weeks. Now we'll talk about solar geoengineering. This is a technology where particles are sprayed into the atmosphere to mimic the world-chilling effects of a huge volcanic eruption. But scientists warn that solar geoengineering could spark what they call termination shock where the temperatures would rebound rapidly and which would cause uncontrolled and potentially devastating climate change. We kind of talked about some of that on the weather control aspect. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, I want to talk about life extension just a little bit. And that sounds like, how could that possibly be a bad thing? Using such technology, mice have already successfully been rejuvenated, reversing the signs of the aging process in their bodies and allowing them to live up to 30% longer. Juan Carlos Espueza Belmonte of Altos Labs says he believes humans' lifespans can be extended by up to 50 years by using either genetic therapies or chemical drugs, and that anti-aging medicine would be a discovery on par with that of antibiotics, which was already revolutionary. Experts warn that this technology could lead to overpopulation, which, you know, now that you think about it, and by 2030, they expect that one in six people in the world will be 60 or over. So this is leading countries to struggle with the cost of looking after its elderly population. As a matter of fact, in Japan, they're already trying to find new ways to, dev- to care for their aging population and have developed care robots to look after its senior citizens. Uh, this tech could also fan the flames of social warfare, where experts warn that we would live in a world where the rich could survive and the poor doomed to die young. So, you know, I thought, you know, we talked about technology reaching across generations. I thought we could talk about how dangerous technology could be. As a matter of fact, the nanotechnology, I've, I've, read, I've read about that and I've heard about it. I, it was discussed one time on uh, Coast to Coast AM, actually, when they talked about what they call the gray goo theory, which is a nanotechnology would, could potentially be one of the ways that humanity destroys itself. Because again, we're if, bound to do it. If you unleash this horde of intelligent little robots that can do whatever it wants to do, what's to stop it from destroying everybody? Well, in closing, the book written by Thomas Harwooden, 
being hid somewhere in Oxford, as we said, is yet to be found. But I would love to be a fly on the wall when it is eventually found, to the reader to find such a story from the 1500s about strangers meeting across vast expanse of time, learning to overcome obstacles, to forge a relationship of love and understanding and friendship. I think it's a message I think the world needs to hear right now more than ever, and we can only hope it makes an impact on the reader and the world when the time is right for this ancient tome to be discovered beneath the dust of hundreds of years. Thank you for listening. Take this information as you wish. Do with it as you will. Signed, 2109. That's what I liked about the, even the Transformers in the movies. They got the uh, voice actor that did Optimus Prime, you know, to continue to do that. And it's like, man, I hope nothing ever happens to him because if they keep making <laughs> movies, that's part of the reason why I go and watch well, the, that was, you know, the movies. Uh, even in The Mandalorian, Bo-Katan, uh, Katie Sackhoff, the actress, she did her her voice in the cartoon i did not know that and i guess the david filoni who was doing the cartoon i guess he told her like day one he goes someday someday you're gonna be in the armor like on set she goes no i'm not she goes this is <laughs> yeah, a cartoon. This voice actor she, yeah she's like this is a cartoon i'm never gonna do this in real life so when it came time to actually cast bo katan he's like she's my first choice she's a re- like she yeah i mean she was starbuck in the the Battlestar galactica reboot so he's like she's an actor she's done sci-fi before and so I guess the first day she walked out sense. with the Mandalorian helmet and everything in character, he was like, he, he just kind of stood there for a bit, and she like almost started to cry. She's just like, look at this, you know, like you so you told me. Yeah, I, I guess that's the case uh, in the Ahsoka show that's coming up. They have a Twilight character, a female pilot that was in the Rebels cartoon, and they did the same thing with her. Her voice actor, she was the mechanic on Firefly. Oh, okay, yeah. And so when it came time to do live action, they're like, why can't she just play the character? She obviously knows the background. Are you going straight to the messages? Because there was stuff before that. You did the history again this Good week. Lord what Andy. the hell, Come Bill? On, man. Yeah, I basically okay. I, I pick up with the messages. Well, and then <laughs> you have this in '85 too. So, well, this is December '84. The majority okay. of it does take place in '85. A quantum computer would be able to crack the most sophisticated current in- encrypt. Uh, a quantum computer would be able to crack the most sophisticated. Okay. <laughs> a quantum computer would be able to crack. <laughs> All right. Fourth time's the charm. <laughs> Want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And we'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>